Today, I want to talk about food, pretty much like every day for me. <laughs> yes, please. It's one of my favorite topics, too. Especially right now, as COVID is still keeping so many of us prisoners in our own homes, it's one of my favorite escapes. My partner Jeff actually jokes that before lockdown, he had no idea I could cook. But being home all the time and trying to avoid stores and restaurants has had us spending a lot more time in the kitchen over the past year. Some of the dishes I've dusted off lately have included red and green Thai curries and a lovely lemon saffron shrimp linguine. Over the holidays, I made Hanukkah latkes, though we gussied them up with some smoked salmon in addition to the traditional fixings of sour cream and applesauce. Cooking has been a way to keep my travel memories alive and close to my heart as I think back about the places where I learned to make some of these things. Me too. Some of my best memories from traveling are actually taste memories. I've eaten some spectacular and sometimes scary foods around the world, and those multi-sensory experiences have stuck with me. I can almost transport myself back to the environments where I had some of my most incredible bites, like at Hoshinoya Mount Fuji in Japan, where my mom and I savored this beef that literally melted right on our tongues. It was a product of the surrounding wine region where they feed the cows this mash that's left from crushing grapes. It's the only place in the world this happens, and we still talk about it, drooling. Those must have been some very happy and possibly drunk cows. Yep, <laughs> I think they were. Cooking classes I've taken, many in Southeast Asia, from Hoi An, Vietnam to Bangkok, Thailand, have also left indelible marks on me. I try to keep practicing the recipes at home. We love making Ban Si Yu, this amazing kind of Vietnamese pancake with turmeric, shrimp, and pork. And I recently tried a really fun Zoom cooking class taught by a home chef in Tuscany through the company Quilene, which has pivoted during this time to offer immersive global cooking experiences. But I have to say, I've probably learned about destinations with the most intimacy and cultural sensitivity during the walking food tours I've taken. My first ever was focused on street food in Cartagena, Colombia, and it opened my eyes to this mode of exploration, not just for the cuisine, but also the history. Scott Dunn sent me on a fascinating one that wound through the narrow passageways in the Medina in Fez, Morocco, and I actually tried eating sheep's head, which was delicious, by the way. Um, more recently, I did one in Puerto Escondido, Mexico, with Puerto Food Tours, and it gave me a deeper appreciation for the region. Welcome to Conscious Traveler. We're your hosts, Eric and Catherine, and we're excited to dive into the world of meaningful, mind-opening travel with you. With our stories and interviews, we hope to make it easier for you to indulge your curiosity and seek out rare experiences wherever you go next. My most memorable food tour actually started with a chance encounter. After a friend's wedding in Europe, I had a few days to explore on my own, so I went to Spain's Priorat wine region in the mountains southwest of Barcelona. I stayed at Trosos del Priorat's winery guesthouse, and there I met a vivacious young woman named Marwa Preston, who happened to run a business leading visitors on food experiences in Barcelona. We quickly became friends and shared dinners together, and every time I've visited the city since then, we've been lucky enough to meet up. One of the last times I was there, she picked me up at my hotel around 4 p.m., and we were out exploring, eating, drinking, nibbling, sipping, talking, just everything, and enjoying until around 2 a.m. Early by Spanish standards. <laughs> Too true. <laughs> I could have stayed out even longer, though. As you and I talked about how food has changed our perspectives on various destinations, I knew Marwa would be the perfect person to call and learn how cuisine can be the key to discovering the hidden facets even of an over-touristed place like Barcelona. Here's what she she had to say. Hola, Marwa. How are you doing? Hola, hola from Barcelona. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. You know, it's interesting to talk to you right now because, you know, you run a food tour company, but restaurants must be closed there right now. So what's going on at the moment? Well, tourism is uh, very, very low if there is any right now. 
the rules keep changing. So sometimes restaurants are open, sometimes they're closed, sometimes it's only terrace, 30%. So we're keeping an eye close to the news and waiting to hear when everything will back to quote unquote normal. I see. Well, I think we're all waiting on that and hopefully don't have too much longer to wait. But for a city like Barcelona, the food is so integral to not only the identity there, but the socializing activities, you know, the cultural heritage and, and stuff like that. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you decided to start Wanderbeek and why Barcelona? I was living in London at the time and I took a trip over to Barcelona and I remember exactly till today where I was sitting, where I was having my first tapa. Tapa is a way of sharing small dishes with people and I just sat there and I thought, this is home. I don't know what exactly about it is, but I was eating gamba salajillo. I actually even remember with the shrimp cooked in, uh, in oil and garlic and mm. parsley. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I want to come here and I want to live here and be able to just eat in this way. And just people are talking and drinking wine. And that energy really attracted me to come here. And initially, I didn't know what I was going to be doing, but I knew that Barcelona was the place. I was in the corporate world for about 11 years when I decided, let me try to do something different. And I wrote on a piece of paper everything that I love. I love the sun. I love the beach. I love uh-huh. food. I love teaching. And all of that really was how Wanderbeek was born because I decided to create something out of the love of everything that I have. And mm. one big part of it is sharing that pleasure of food and wine and culture through food and wine with people. And so Wanderbeek, because we wander and wither beak. Uh-huh. which means we, we peck, peck, peck. So. Digging into that sort of idea a little bit more, how do you think that food really can help a person discover a place or a culture, like in a way that other activities can't? How did you find that on your own? Uh, I felt routine? like it was really an experience more than just, you know, when you go on a tour, someone's just telling you something rather than it being interactive and being two-way. So with food and wine, You're sitting at the bar and having uh, wine with an 80-year-old man who opened this place 40 years ago and his kids will take it over. And so there's a story behind it. And then when you Mm -hmm. go home, you remember that story, you remember that feeling. And it's about not just the old man, but the music and the ambience in the place, rather than just going and seeing a church and... How many churches do you remember after seeing them? How many beaches and how many monuments? They might be important for the city's characteristic, but not really the feeling of what the Uh city really is. When you said, you know, you could see a church and how well do you remember it? In Barcelona specifically, you go see La Sagrada Familia, but you're there with a bunch of other tourists sort of wandering around and gawking and not actually interacting with Catalonian people. And so like you pointed out, a restaurant is a great way to get it interpersonal connections. But one of the things that I really enjoyed having gone out on a tour, an individual friends friends <laughs> tour with you, Marwa. Aren't you special? I felt that way. <laughs> I had I had like eight hours of undivided attention. And food and wine. And food and wine. It's <laughs> yeah. getting better with time. Huh? Exactly. I had to roll home after. But your tours aren't just about the food. You actually just use the food as a context in a lot of ways to talk about Mm -hmm. the city's history, the sort of food traditions, and then even things like architecture and new artisans, people doing everything from like coffee and chocolate to, you know, fashion and crafts. And that's what really impressed me that you find a way in through the food. Could you tell us a little bit more about how it's helped you discover some of these facets of Barcelona and other places? 
I totally agree. For me, any city is like a little onion and you can keep removing layers and layers and discovering it from different sides and different angles. So that's why when you mentioned the artisans, for me, this is a different way of seeing Barcelona because the fashion and the design is different than it would be in Rome, different than Portugal, different than... So each place has its own personality. And while we're walking, like you said, our goal is to make people feel the city the city meaning its culture, its people, its traditions, its history, its art, all of that, using food as the vehicle. Because food is a way to get people together. So we go to different places and eat and drink, yes. But through different stops, while we're going from place to place or while we're in a place, we get people to feel the traditions and, you know, what you're eating right now, people have been eating it this way and this way. And how did it change a long time while you're sipping the vermouth, whatever it may be, you're just experiencing that story while you're actually enjoying that piece of food or drink. And you had mentioned tapas, which most people I think associate with Spain, but Mm -hmm. specifically to Barcelona and Catalonian cuisine, what are some of the dishes or things that you get people to try or educate them about that we might not realize are, you know, even more Catalonian than tapas. Takes me to a very, very good story. And you nailed it just right on the head. <laughs> Is in the beginning when I used, when I came to Barcelona the first time, I remember going and seeing on a menu and it said cannelloni. Why would I eat Italian food? So I ordered tapas. And that's why I remember I was telling you sitting there and eating tapas. Mm-hmm. And the more I understood about the local cultures, actually, Catalan cuisine is more influenced by our, the neighbors, by France and Italy, than it really is by Spain. So if you want to eat something really local, go for the Catalan cuisine because tapas is very generic and very Spanish. So back to cannelloni, actually, it is one of the most typical Catalan dishes. Uh, Traditionally eaten on uh, Boxing Day, so the 26th of December, they take all the leftover meats from this soup that they make on Christmas and they fill it in the pastas and they cover it with bechamel sauce. And it's a process. The grandmother will be making it for hours and it's how Boxing Day is represented by food in Catalonia. So for me now to go to a Catalan restaurant, the first thing I want to try is cannelloni. (laughs) And it's completely different than the Italian cannelloni. So I highly recommend people to have that. The other thing is is the culture of vermouth. So it might not be specifically just Catalan, but it is very big here. Okay, So vermouth is a lot more than just what we know as martini. And the history of vermouth in Barcelona specifically is very strong because it used to be the drink of the rich. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you can imagine, you know, in the early 1900s where we know this time frame as uh, modernismo or art nouveau in France, this time period of the new money of post-industrialization. And you can imagine all these rich people drinking this fancy vermouth. And right before the civil war here, so right before 1936, you had this massive divide in uh, classes. So you had all these rich people getting richer and they're really the factory owners. And then you had all the workers and the fishermen that lived in the poorer neighborhoods like Barceloneta, et cetera. And one day the workers came and they said, you know what? We're going to take this drink from the rich. And they started making their own vermouth in their bodegas using their own spices because vermouth really just is fortified wine Mm -hmm. with all these spices, herbs and florals and all of that infused in it. And so then you'd have bars and bars, each one creating their own version of vermouth because maybe Eric, you like it sweeter and maybe Catherine, you like anise. So you add more anise. So everybody Mm -hmm. had their little bit of recipe. And then so when the poor started drinking it, the rich stopped. So then it became for a long time known as the poor man's drink. Mm -hmm. Uh. So understanding that history with the drink for me is incredible. And if you had come to Barcelona about 20 years ago, vermouth was the drink of 
the grandpa or the grandma. It wasn't, it wasn't something that, I don't know, someone in their 20s, 30s would go and have. And that changed with time. And I'd say in the past 10 years, it's something you go and you do. You go and you have vermouth, which means you go at a specific time, which is before lunch. So it's like the aperitive that Italians have, but before lunch. Oh, and early. You have a drink. <laughs> Absolutely. You have it with your morning cafe. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do cafe. We skip right to that. <laughs> That's <alcohol>. it, right? <laughs> and it is about 17%. So isn't, oh, wow. isn't the lightest thing. That's no beer. Yeah. <laughs> but there's always food that goes along as well with it. So it's if I, if I call you and I say, hey, do you want to go for vermouth tomorrow? That is almost like saying, do you want to go for coffee? It's not really as much about the specific drink. But it means let's get together mm-hmm. before lunch and let's socialize. So actually, a Catalan friend of mine told me, actually, she's, she was one of the guys that worked with us. She told me until she was 14, she didn't realize that vermouth was actually a drink. Because as a child, she would That's go to church. Funny. It was very typical on Sundays to do vermouth. You go to church, you get dressed up for mass. And after mass, you have this bracket of hour or two hour before lunch where you go and you socialize with your friends. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of menus in uh, around Spain, you'll see a section that says vermouth. And under that, you have Coca-Cola, you have olives, you have chips, you have it's all everything. these things. And, it's and almost it's, like it's, a happy hour. Exactly. They actually call it la hora del vermouth, the hour uh, of vermouth. Uh, vermouth hour. Fascinating. <laughs> exactly. But right now, vermouth hour is every hour. <laughs> <laughs> For all of us, seriously. For the last nine months. That's it. (laughs) But most people, like for example, I would not drink vermouth at 9 p.m. Only Italians would drink it in the evening. For me, it's a day day drink. (laughs) I see. Well, so Mara, I mean, that story sort of perfectly encapsulates my next question, which I guess we'll just discuss right now. The fact that, you know, in a city like Barcelona, which is known for being over-touristed, or at least it has been up until now. And for visitors like me who've been several times, it must be a challenge to find new and authentic ways of introducing dishes, flavors, and parts of that culture, which you've just done so beautifully, weaving in parts of Barcelona society and history, as well as the day-to-day uh, significance of this one one drink that people might not even realize is so woven into the fabric of the city's life. How do you find some of these stories and these ways in to introduce new things to visitors who might know the city very well and yet keep them away from some of these sort of well-known, well-trod, over-touristed kind of experiences? I think that the worst word I can ever hear is touristic restaurant or a Mm -hmm. touristy restaurant, because then right away we're going into what the preconceived ideas of what the city or what this country is going to give us. Right. So that's why you see on La Rambla, you see all these big signs of big paella and sangria. We don't drink sangria here. Okay, they create sangria so that tourists can drink sangria. I had so much sangria. Uh oh. Eric, you were just (laughs) such a tourist. (laughs) Or it's for the young. Let's say that, Eric. (laughs) Well, that's not me either, but there you go. (laughs) But for me, it's about always talking to the locals and talking to even the bar owners and the restaurant owners, and they share with you their favorite places and why it's their favorite places. And like I said, that onion that you're keeping on. Uh, removing layers and layers. And for me, what I want to do is I want to share with people my Barcelona or my Madrid, how I felt there. And because someone local there took me around. And so it's that experience that I'm trying to recreate to show them, come here and see a life, a day in a life of a local in Barcelona, where it could be that we go to a 
fancy rooftop and then then right after we're sitting on a small stool where there's ham hanging from above us and it's not the fanciest place and then you're going to another bar where there's no seats you're standing up and you're having bars and you're having uh, finger food so that experience for me is very Barcelona whereas if it were London your East London experience is very different than your West London whereas in Barcelona you can have all of that in a day so that's what I'm trying to get people to feel and go to the places that I would go not what I think they want to go to. Previously, you talked about showing people the soul of Barcelona, which I think it sounds like, you know, you're doing so well. And I'm curious to know what you feel like, you know, in your experience now of hosting your tours, it might be a city that is somewhere else in the world or maybe Barcelona, but what would you say people could look for to know that their experience at this food tour is going to be authentic? Like, is it a mix of going to places that they're going to engage with locals versus just being shown around as a tour group and not engaging with people. What right. are some of the ways that someone could kind of vet potential experiences? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what can people look for? Or how do you know if it's going to be authentic? A few things for me is one, obviously, is a group size. You don't want to be one in 30. One in 30 means it's going to be like a factory. The second thing is I really like to look at the website and the reviews. And I want to see if it's mainly about just the food or is it mainly about the experience. The mm. word experience needs to be used. And I know sometimes maybe now we overuse it, but the word tour is targeting a specific audience. I know between mm -hmm. us now we use food tour because that is the common way to use it. But really, if someone is focusing on how someone's going to experience something and you can really get that personality from reading the reviews and how people, what commenters have left. So for example, with Wanderbeek, for me, it's really important when and very beautiful when people are talking about the guide because really they're seeing the city through that guide's eyes. And we don't call them guides, we call them hosts because they're hosting you in their city. So if they say, one of the reviews said, oh, I felt like I, I, I was Annie's best friend and she was just showing me around. That for me is a good review more than, oh, the jamon was incredible. The jamon was mm -hmm. incredible, is great, and I want to hear that. But they felt like she was like their best friend and that they can't wait to tell their friends about it. And that feeling is more than just saying tour was great. How do you find your hosts and do they have sort of scripts or things that you ask them to make sure to tell people or is it really them creating this, again, experience based on their own experiences and their life and their, you know, maybe being raised there, growing up there and what their knowledge is? For me, there's been many different ways to how I found the hosts. A lot of it has been through people, people talking to people and said, oh my God, you have to go here. You will love this. And as soon as I meet them and I can see this one passion for Barcelona and this, that they are people, people, because I can't teach people how to be good with people. And that they have this love inside to do this. I know that they're right people. For there the is a script because I want, we need the information all 100% validated and specific things that we cannot miss. But what makes the experience is the layer of the host's personality. And that is what they connect on. And they are free to add and and share their personal experience and their personal stories. And, and actually, till today, I hear some stories from the hosts, one of them telling me, ah, we just got a Christmas card from a client from two years ago. And another telling me, oh, they sent me some chocolates. And the other one's telling me, I'm going to go visit them in New York. And so for me, this is incredible because you're really creating a connection, not just, it's not a job. It's about them being able to express themselves and share a passion that they have. And for me, it's so beautiful to see this love that, these hosts have for what they do. I think it's so interesting too that you said, you know, it's them hosting you in their city and sharing what they love about it. And I'm curious, you know, how many of your hosts are from Barcelona or at least Catalonia? But on the flip side of that, what do you feel like having come to the city 
from elsewhere and as an outsider has added to your own perspective about not just the food, but about the city that has enriched perhaps what you see when you look around you? For me, it's not really important where the person's from. Okay, sometimes we actually feel like a local will show you more. But when somebody chooses a city, they choose it for a reason. Mm -hmm. And they want to see it through different eyes. And they are a lot more curious in general to discovering the city and asking the question, why? Why is tortilla like this? Why is it called that? Not just because it was always called that, because we don't have that background. Mm -hmm. So I have Catalan hosts, but I also have American and Polish and Brazilian and Hungarian. And it's really a melting pot. But if you've chosen a city to be your home and you want to share that with people, then that love and that energy is what's transmitted. So sometimes I work with agencies and they say, yeah, the, the client wants a local guide. They just trust me on this one. When this person takes them, they are just going to fall in love. And since that first request, I have never gotten a request for a specific nationality because it's about uh-huh. the person, you know? And for me, that is really important because I started this company and I am not Catalan. And now we're launching in Madrid and in uh, Lisbon and in Seville and then hopefully across Europe. And so it's not where you're from and what's running in your blood, but it's really your passion and your energy for a specific place and its culture. I love that approach. And finally, also want to ask you, what are a few of your personal favorite dishes or specialties there that you mm, cannot leave stuff. Barcelona without trying? You make me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Good question, Catherine. I'm on the edge of my there seat. Are so many, so many right now. I'm just trying to go through my list. Of course, Canelonia, and we've talked about that. Definitely think everybody should do the Hour of Vermouth, but order specific dishes that go with Ora del Vermouth. One for me is called boquerones. Boquerones is the same fish that you'd use for what we know as anchovy. And forget everything you know about North American anchovies or British anchovies, because here it's a delicacy. And this is one of the things we try to express to people because this fish is marinated in vinegar. And actually the acidity is what cooks the fish, similar to ceviche. And the acidity goes so well with the sweetness of the vermouth. And so, for example, if you have a sip of the vermouth, and you taste all the sweetness and all that, and then you have the boquerones, and then you have the vermouth again, you don't taste as much the sweetness, but more the spices and the herbs come. So this is a way of pairing food as well. I can attest to this particular experience because you took me to a vermouth bar. What was the man's name? Pepe or something like that? Oh, yes, Pepe. Very good. Very good memory. (laughs) I I was like taking notes, I'm sure of it, at least in my mind, where it was uh, vermouth and like a plate of boquerones. And it's true. And fried fish as well. And fried fish, which was also delicious. And two sort of little nibbles that I've had quite a lot in Spain, but the vermouth, as you said, did transform it. And then you were telling me all about Pepe, who's been running the bar for 50 years. So, and it's right off the port, basically. Anyone could come through, but you could miss it in the blink of an eye because it's just a little pocket bar, basically. It's really a corner. You find people standing. And actually, it reminds me of your question, Catherine, how do you know a good restaurant is if you hear a lot of Spanish, (laughs) or a a lot of Catalan, or a lot of a lot of people laughing is a really good one with no names, no signs, none, none of that outside. Another thing in Catalonia, I think they really have to try is, well, dishes that fall under the umbrella of mar y montaña. Mar means the sea because the Mediterranean's right there. And montaña is the mountain because you have the Pyrenees in the north. So there's a lot of dishes in Catalonia that marry the two together. So imagine surf and turf, but it's cooked in the same dish. Mm. So uh, Mari Montania Paella would uh, potentially be with pork ribs and shrimp. You could have a dish called uh, albondigas con sepia, which is meatballs 
with uh, cuttlefish. So the combination in one in the beginning for me, it took me a while to process it and I thought it was a little strange, but it's mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And this is the whole thing of exploring food and exploring a place to say, throw everything I knew about food beforehand and let me get into this culture and let me let me taste it and let me test it and let me let the taste buds do their thing. There's something about going to a different place and just sort of opening your mind up to a new flavor where you wouldn't try it before. Like I was in Morocco with my mother and she's not someone who would eat raw fish if she knew it was raw fish, but, you know, presented in a place where you don't really understand what they're telling you it is. She ate some and loved it, you know, and we did a food tour kind of experience through Fez as well. And at one point they wanted us to try this like boiled sheep's head, which again, you hear that and you're like, never would I I ever do that in the States. You know, that sounds horrifying, but we tried it and it was melt in your mouth, incredible deliciousness, you know? And Mm. I think you have to be removed from your own bubble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From your bubble to really open yourself up to these things that can be mind-blowingly amazing and delicious. So, and they are the stories you remember. See the story that you're telling us now is less about the landscape and more about breaking through and seeing something new and For me, for example, I had a vegetarian try jamon for the first time. I don't push anybody to do something they're not Uh comfortable with. But when I explained the story of how these pigs are raised and how they eat better than most of our families and and all of that, and she (laughs) said, okay, so it's definitely cruelty-free and going. So she tried it and she cried. And Mm. for me, (laughs) I almost cried because I knew that this was a moment she's going to remember. And be kicking and, herself that she hadn't been eating it this whole time, right? basically. <laughs> she actually said that. She goes, I won't eat ham back home, but I will have jamón ibérico de bellota every time I come to yeah. Spain. <laughs> but it's like it's breaking down barriers and also, in a way, making us less judgmental, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Which I think are just some of the great things that can come with travel and opening yourselves up to new cultures is, you know, opening your mind to other possibilities and not thinking that your way is the only way. Speaking of which, if I can hop on that point, I think some of the dishes you've talked about, Mara, and also some of the experiences that you run, food is the great equalizer because we've all got to eat, whether we eat to live or live to eat kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But some of the dishes you were just describing in the flavors of the Mari Montagna are sort of the same things you can have at El Sayer de Can Roca up in Girona, mm-hmm. you know, like one of the world's best restaurants where they reimagine these textures and flavors. But it's also something, yeah, you can hop by the corner bar and have the same thing in a different version. And that's, to me, what makes food such a wonderful launching pad for discovery is that you can run the spectrum of budget, taste, experience level and you can still find something for everyone absolutely especially in barcelona i don't understand it at all when people go and eat the fast food chains mcdonald's and burger king and all that because you can eat really well for quite so cheap yeah and and you can you don't even need to join a potentially a food tour but just go and walk and i always tell people get lost get lost in the city you know like like Europe and Spain and Barcelona, it's all about walking. Take an alley, take a left turn, take a right turn, watch your stuff, yes. But then, you know, you see a place that's interesting, go. Order something. You can look at people, what people are eating. And that's what I did on one of the first times I came because I didn't know what to order. I just saw people, I kept pointing because the guys didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish. And I just kept pointing, one of this, one of this, one of this. And then everybody was sharing their food. (laughs) It was a lovely, lovely experience that I still remember. Well, I still remember the afternoon that we spent together. I love that we actually met up in one of the wine regions that's quite near Barcelona and basically 
met and ended up sharing dinner after dinner together and bottle after bottle. Um, <laughs> but you've made me not only hungry, but also wistful for a little bit of wanderlust and some travel time. And I can't wait to get back to Barcelona so we can have some more foodie adventures. And I can't wait to host you and eat and drink until we can't move anymore. Oh, amen. <laughs> I've never been to Barcelona, so you're going to have to... Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Looking forward to walking the little alleyways and sharing stories and eating and drinking all afternoon with you, Catherine. Amazing. Great. Thank, Thank you, Marwa. Talk to you soon. Thank you're you. You're very welcome. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. I really can't wait to visit Marwa in Barcelona, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. I can tell she would show me a great time and the best restaurants. Her passion for food and the culture it represents truly shines through. Next, we have a couple of guests who you've been out eating with, Catherine. That's right. When I was taking a seaborne cruise up the coast of Vietnam with my dad, I did some research on my own to find a food tour in Saigon, aka Ho Chi Minh City, since we had a free day there and I wanted us to have a really authentic introduction to the cuisine and lifestyle. It was my dad's first time in the country and I knew I would not be a sufficient foodie guide. I found Saigon Street Eats, which was started by a husband and wife team, Vu and Barbara, and we took their pho trail walking tour. It ended up being an amazingly vibrant education into not just the famous noodle soup, but also Saigon's singular culture. Not to mention it's hectic traffic, I hear. Oh, yes. <laughs> we talked to Barbara and Vu about just what it is they hope to show guests on their food tours, how cuisine can be the gateway to an entire cultural experience, and how their relationship, Vu is from Vietnam and Barbara's from Australia, has shaped what they do. Would love for you to start with telling us how you two came to meet and start a food business together in Saigon. Well, I went to Vietnam to have a bit of a career break and I ended up working at an English language newspaper. And one of my colleagues shared a house with Vu and Vu started turning up at our after work drinks, which sometimes started at midnight, sometimes started at one or two in the morning, depending on how late <laughs> we got the paper to bed. Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do that now. And things just developed from there. Now we have two kids and a food business. <laughs> Did you guys start to bond over food immediately? Oh, yeah. That's the most Australian way of saying, yes, I love it. <laughs> what was it? Did you guys just start talking about it? <clears throat> so in Vietnam, when they say go out for a drink, it always involves food. And there are certain dishes that are known as, as, as drinking food. It's kind of like the Spanish tapas. Everyone else was focused on the drinking. And I was like, what's this? Oh, wow. Yum. Uh, uh, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't do the chicken feet. I can understand that. <laughs> it's a strong visual for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you went from newspaper journalist to owning a street food tour business. Tell us about the journey to figuring out that there was an opportunity in the market for what you guys are now doing. We had a lot of friends come and visit us in Ho Chi Minh City and we'd take them out and do all these things that are just everyday Vietnamese stuff like going drinking. And they just had such a fun time. And just about every person we took out, they would say, this is better than any tour that I've done. You should do this as a tour. You should take people out to do this. And we were both like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> then the magazine I was working for folded quickly. So I said to Vu, well, maybe we'll give it a go. And that was um, eight and a half years ago. I think what's interesting about your partnership and the fact that you guys built this business together is that, you know, Vu, you're from Vietnam and, you know, can speak to the everydayness of these foods and when people eat what and what exactly 
things are. And then Barbara coming in with an outsider's perspective about what's new and interesting about this. Why do you eat this? What is it? Just asking even some basic questions must make for a really interesting combination and one that probably helps you with people who aren't from Vietnam coming to taste the food, sort of helping them pinpoint what exactly is special or interesting, but also what makes these foods a day-to-day kind of enjoyment in Vietnam. We had a lot of fun working it out. You know, there were some things that Vu had to research and learn because it was just so everyday to him. For instance, the beetle leaves that they sell at the market on our morning walking tour. When we reach the market, they're the first stall we see. A couple of lovely old ladies that sit there selling these leaves and other strange things. And when Mm -hmm. I first asked Vu, what is that? He just shrugged and he said, that's for old people. (laughs) And then he had to, you know, ask his parents, ask the sellers And then that is one of the things that we do. We ask people if they want to try beetle leaf and we tell them that it's really, really terrible. (laughs) I can attest to that. I did try it. Not good. (laughs) You get hard, Kathleen? I don't think I kept it in my mouth that long. It was like a (laughs) quick taste and spit it out sort of thing. (laughs) But, you know, we're not trying to trick people. We say, this tastes really bad. Uh Uh-huh. And we say, okay, do you want it before or after the good stuff? You always want to end on a high note. At least that's my take. I'm sure, though, the process of putting together your tours was obviously interesting for both of you and a learning experience because, Vu, you're finding out about things that you might not have questioned about the sort of culture where you grew up. But because Barbara has a different perspective and thinks some things may be weird or interesting or different, you're getting to sort of question that and discover more about where you came from. Um, Bear in mind, we were doing all this research with a three-year-old with us. Oh, wow. Even more of a challenge. You know, and I think what we're talking about in this episode especially is some of the ways that food can act as a gateway to a culture. And and I know when I did my tour with you, I loved it so much because it wasn't just about try this, try this, try this without context. It was trying new tastes and flavors and foods and things that I might not ever know existed if I hadn't come to Saigon or come on your tour. But also you're giving the history of something or why this is relevant or why it's eaten, when it's eaten, in addition to kind of just walking around the markets and pointing out really interesting things that are sold that maybe don't have anything to do with food really, but are just such cool little tidbits. You know, you all taught us how to cross the street without getting mowed down by all the cars and these little cultural sort of touch points and things that I think are so meaningful when you're traveling to a place and trying to go beyond the surface level. Was that intentional as you were putting together the tours? Yeah, because I mean, I was also learning about Vietnamese culture and now, one of the things I like best about our morning walking tour is when we get, we get to the market and we walk alongside it and we sit down and we have a cool drink because it's always stinking hot. And I tell yeah. people about how the market works in everyday life and how in a multi-generational house there'll be one or two women who will just spend their day going to the market, cooking, cleaning up, going to the market. They might go to the market three or four times a day. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> I also explain, you know, these dudes sitting on their motorbikes outside the market, they're the ones that are too cheap to pay for parking and they're waiting for for their wife or mother or girlfriend to go into the market, get the stuff and come back. They don't want to pay 2,000 dong, which I think is a couple of cents. Sure, I think it's about 10 cents these days. But what are some of the stories, the interesting food stories that you've come across while doing it? Are there any particular dishes that really have provided both of you with an insight into, you know, a particular uh, Vietnamese flavor or insight that you share with your guests? 
I'm basically asking for the free tour right now, <laughs> but just a preview of it. <laughs> Vietnam has a, it's a small country, but we have long coastline and then uh, from north to south, it's, it's very long, a skinny country. We have different regions and different regional cuisines. So it depends on where you go to in Vietnam and then there are different dishes and different tastes around. So in the north, pho was created there and so now is you know famous in the world so if you go to hanoi definitely you have to try pho in hanoi but when you come to saigon it's like melting pot so we have pho here as well but we like more sugar in our food so the food here tastes a little bit sweeter and then we love seafood so when you come to saigon you have to try snails and uh, seafood here and also broken rice and uh, Ban mi, you know, ban mi. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You can find it <laughs> anywhere you go in, in Vietnam. Ban mi basically very uh, popular. And uh, it's cheap, like $1, less than $1 for ban mi uh, sandwich. I found it really surprising that pho was eaten at breakfast. Here in the States, people would eat it for dinner at a restaurant. Even just that initial thing surprised me when we when I was looking at the tour options and that the pho trail tour was a morning thing. It's an any time of day thing. It's not necessarily a going out for dinner thing because the fur places you you go, you eat and you leave, whereas going out to dinner usually involves lots of talking, a few beers, and you can't really do that in a fur joint. The food that has a story, apart from Vu's family's Bun Bo Hue, I always say that Vietnamese curry has all the, the history in one dish. How so? So India and Vietnam have been trading for centuries, so the Vietnamese cooks got the idea of the curry, the curry powder. They use coconut milk in it, which is the Khmer and Thai influence from mm-hmm. Thailand and Cambodia. It's usually chicken, curry, curry gar, and it has lemongrass in it, and it's usually eaten with a baguette, so you get the French influence that as is. well. You're making me really hungry right now, by the way, <laughs> describing that. <laughs> I like also that you've told us the way of knowing if a restaurant's good or worthwhile is that it should be a little bit run down maybe a warning well loved (laughs) but vu always says make sure they've got running water also a good tip exactly yeah what are some of the other hallmarks if someone's going out vu to look for on their own if they want to try a dining out in ho chi minh usually i recommend people to go to the place that had a good setup not just like small table and chair outside make sure you go to places where they pack with local people but not with students. For students, usually they use cheap quality uh, food, so it's not safe for foreigners or travelers. For local people, we have iron stomach, so it's fine, but (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) you travel first time to Vietnam and you need to go to a place that look a little bit clean, like table and and, then chairs look a bit well set up and they cook food in front of you, so it's safer, everything looks fresh. And it's more fun to watch your dinner being cooked right in front of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> it makes more of the experience. Yeah, right. <laughs> and make sure the food is hot and cooked properly, yes. I know you've said, too, that you would warn people against going to the sort of famous eating streets that the guidebooks might point out. The thing about Vietnam at the moment, especially, is things are changing so fast. At the moment, a lot of places just haven't been able to survive and they're just shut. But I would say, still Vu's advice, you want to look for a place that's busy with locals, One of the things I heard him tell people once was make sure the people serving look healthy. (laughs) Uh, 
very important, very interesting. Yeah, you just want to make sure that, you know, if it's kind of jumping, it's happening, there's people bustling around serving and people talking, laughing. And the, the other thing is there's food in front of them. Usually when the food is gone, that's when people get up to go. It doesn't matter if there's a pile of rubbish left behind because it gets cleared pretty quickly. In fact, a pile of rubbish is kind of how the restaurants, some of the restaurants market themselves. So the more rubbish on the table and the floor, the more successful they are. Yeah, and the more people have been through. <laughs> yeah, and um, if you turn up and there's no clean table, they'll clean it really quickly. But they do leave it there to kind of go like, man, look how busy we are. We can't even possibly have time to clean our table. <laughs> As you take people through just the streets of Saigon and also markets and even into temples and things, what are some of your favorite stories or little tidbits that you like to share or that you feel like people really enjoy learning? Like for me, I thought it was fascinating that in the markets they sell paper or cardboard money or foods and things that are just printed on the ancestor offerings. Yeah, like I thought that was such a cool thing to know. So, you know, again, it's like you're mixing the food and the culture in such a fun way. Do you have favorite kind of elements of these things that you really like sharing with Westerners or foreigners? For me, I, I, I like to share stories and uh, histories of the food and the history of Vietnam. And if they want to know about the war and anything, you know, I, I would share what I know. Do you think people are afraid to ask about that, as Americans at least? The older people, they interested in those things more than the younger people. Like they want to know what happened in Vietnam during the war and, you know, those things they really interested in. Yeah, I remember when I met you, Vu, I said, have you ever seen a tank? Oh, really? Yeah. you seen a tank, like, driving <laughs> Hi, down I'm the Barbara. street? Barbara, have you seen a tank? <laughs> Did it go like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, though, I think this is an interesting point, right, where you do have other cultures coming to meet you you know, in your home and to try to experience, you know, a little bit of the place and the culture and the people through its food. How do you guys balance introducing your visitors, your guests to some foods they might be a little anxious about or that might feel just so foreign to them versus, you know, pho, banh mi are things that we're familiar with and I'm sure, you know, everybody's happy to try them. But like, do you try to push the envelope a little bit? Are people open to it? On one of our tours, like the evening tours, there's often people wandering around selling embryo eggs. Mm -hmm. And um, we will say to people, so that's the embryo egg. Are you interested in trying it? And they'll say, you know, yes or no, or what does it taste like? And I said, look, we can order one and you can have a look at it. And then I say, personally, I've never had one because... <laughs> Everyone says it tastes just like egg, so uh -huh. I'll just eat the egg. Leave the dead baby out of mine. <laughs> mm. So, and sometimes, you know, we'd say, like, you want to watch Vu eat one? <laughs> He's the sideshow. <laughs> I don't want to eat it anymore. People believe it's, uh, like, food that make you feel sexy, you know, like for oh. liberal. Oh. An aphrodisiac. And I'm too uh, far away, am I? <laughs> <laughs> Barbara's ordering them by the plateful for him. <laughs> so that's the story behind it. Interesting. So now that COVID has obviously halted so many tourism activities everywhere in the world, and I know in Vietnam as well, you guys have come up with some ways to sort of pivot that are still food oriented. So I'd love for you to tell us about the ways you're still trying to educate and bring people these flavors and insights into Vietnam, the culture and cuisine, even during COVID. I've set up a new concept called Saigon Supper Club. And what I'm doing is Vietnamese home cooking webinars. And I'm saying it's a holiday at home experience. 
because people are locked down everywhere. People can't actually travel. So I'm saying have a little holiday at home. I will show you how to cook. I'll give you a playlist, some wine pairing recommendations and some Netflix movie recommendations. So you can make, you know, half a day out of it. That sounds like it's the full experience. I'm hoping to recruit hosts from all around the world so that people can like zoom into someone's kitchen and feel like they're right there with them. Like food pen pals. <laughs> and then Vu, what are you working on back in Saigon? I'm planning to open a, a restaurant that offers my mom's dish, the Bung Bo Hue. And what is that exactly, Vu? Bung Bo Hue, it's a noodles dish that we use beef and uh, it's like a soup. It's like pho, but the flavor is different. And the way we, we serve is different. So we have a lemongrass, different type noodles and cooked beef and pork and sausages. Okay, and it comes from the town of Hue, the city yeah, of Hue. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Hue was the imperial capital of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's where the emperors based themselves. It's known for those like beautiful canals. Translation of Bumbo Hue would just be Hue style noodles. Hue style oh, okay. beef noodles. Oh, okay. Is Bumbo yeah. noodle? Bung is noodles. Oh, okay. Bo is I mean beef, like fur ball. So, what's your mom's secret recipe then? It's a secret. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> It was so secret. When when Vu said, can you show me the recipe? She said no. Because she wouldn't or because it was more of a like a pinch of this, a dash of that? It's not easy to cook. You you need to practice and learn the balance, the ingredients. I try to cook it a few times now and then it's better. (laughs) I still need to do more research and see how Saigon people like to eat the bung bò hue because in hue they like to use a lot of chili so the bung bò hue usually spicy and uh, in saigon people don't use much chili in the food it's different in hue it's hot region so they love using a lot of chili maybe we can leave on this big thought i think it's interesting when i look back at the food tours that i've taken or the reasons for taking them and also cooking classes because i think you know it's just the flip side of the same coin Being able to eat the foods that people have every day in places given me not only a a newfound appreciation for, you know, the ingredients and the work that goes into cooking many of these things, but as you guys weave into the stories that you tell, it's sort of a very down-to-earth, everyday way to incorporate the history, culture, and just ideas and and day-to-day way of living of a place. And I'm wondering if your visitors, your guests have told you about some of the things that they've taken away from your tours that the food has given them a new appreciation of that they might not have sort of gleaned otherwise, either from the guidebook or museums or walking around. The thing I like to introduce them to the food and the culture and then take them around and show them how people live and how people eat in Vietnam and also show them some tips that they can go out and and find good places later by themselves. The interesting thing is, like, we bike around in the city so they see the real life and this real experience so that's the uh, thing that surprised them and also make them feel interesting about the place they go to and the food always we would take them to the best places in town so we know they enjoy the food and also uh, share a good time with us so that's the thing that I like to do with them. I think we also help people interpret what they see because mm. you know street scene in Vietnam can be overwhelming There's motorbikes, there's pollution, there's people yelling, there's honking, there's people wheeling carts past, and you don't know what to look at or what it all means. And when we just slow things down and point things out, I think people get a real 
a better appreciation of what's going on rather than just this big, loud, in-your-face mess of chaos. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I also think doing that and also taking a moment to stop here and there and to eat really gives someone a moment to reflect on what's going on around them to soak it in, in a way that, you know, going from place to place or being directed or purpose-driven like we all are every moment of our lives these days <laughs> due to technology and other things and the fast pace of it, that simply sharing some food with someone is a very basic and deep-rooted act that is an experience in and of itself. And then on your tours, you know, we kind of collected foods and tidbits along the way in the market and then went and sat down. And again, that's an opportunity to sit down with someone who's local someone who, you know, you can just chat with in a way that you would your friend back at home and have that little bit more kind of local, authentic, down-to-earth experience. That's what we try to do. Well, I'll tell you what you've done. You've made me very hungry, and I can't wait till we can come visit you in Vietnam. And in the meantime, maybe we'll get to check out one of the uh, cooking classes. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thank you. Thank you, and good luck with all your new ventures. I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm seriously hungry right now. Same. And this is cheesy, but I'm hungry to get back on the road, too, and on some more food tours. Well, it may still be a while, but at least we now know what to look for in the future to really have a rich, immersive experience and get the most out of every bite. Now, Catherine, what are we going to make for dinner? <laughs> for more information on Saigon Street Eats and Marwa's company, Wanderbeak, Visit ConsciousTravelerPod.com and follow us on Instagram at ConsciousTravelerPod. Bon appétit! We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter, who composed the music you heard in this episode.